Hi, I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. Welcome to our weekly conversation about food, about passion, and about making a difference in the world. We're in our Boston studio today with two longtime Share Our Strength supporters in different ways. One is known simply as Baz, David Bazargan, chef at Bambara Restaurant. And we're really thrilled to have you here, David. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks. And uh, upcoming Chef Cycle rider for the first time. That's right. Okay, we're going to talk about that. And also here with Jeff Braddock, who is the uh, co-founder of Bridgespan, uh, before that was at Bain, is the author of uh, many papers, but one that is, I think, uh, characteristic of his work called Transformative Scale, The Future of Growing What Works. I think of Jeff as somebody who's been uh, a thought leader and in some ways a mentor to many of us because he's the leading expert in this country on how you scale social impact. And so, so many of us, like those of us at Share Our Strength, the No Kid Hungry campaign, almost any other nonprofit I can think of, develop models. We know we're having an impact, but the challenge always is how do you get them to scale? So Jeff, we're thrilled that you're here with us. It's great to be here. Now, Jeff, you look every bit as fit as Baz and more fit than me. So the question that's going to come up at the end of this podcast is, why aren't you riding Chef Cycle? We'll give you till next year, but you're going to have to get that bike out. I will have to do that. I will have to do that. I'm being inspired by the two of you. Good. Well, Chef Cycle is our uh, annual 300-mile ride that raises over $2 million every year for uh, the No Kid Hungry campaign. We'll talk about it uh, in a little bit. You know, Baz, we always have a, a chef on this show because chefs are at the heart and soul of Share Our Strength. They have been from the very first day, more than 30-some years ago. What path did you take to get here? I had read that you'd started as a as a dishwasher in Newburyport at a very young age. So kind of the restaurant industry, it sounds like, has been in your blood almost from the beginning. Pretty much. Uh, I didn't grow up in an industry family, but growing up in a seaport town in the summers, I worked in uh, various restaurants and dishwashed and kind of worked my way up as a prep cook and eventually became a cook. And I, I veered off for uh, here and there, you know, painted one summer and worked in a machine shop, but ultimately came back into uh, into the industry and got, got really serious about it in the mid-90s. And you were at some amazing uh, restaurants uh, here and around the country. I know in the Boston area, you were at uh, Salamander, I think. Is that right? I was at Salamander. Also at uh, Olives? Olives, yes. Okay. Um, but I got my my real start at Galleria Italiana with Barbara Lynch. So I was at culinary school at the Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. And uh, the, the pastry teacher had, had mentored Barbara and helped Barbara out. Barbara reached out to, her name was Susan Lugozo. That was history. What years were you at Galleria Italiano? 95, 96. That's so interesting because literally my first date with my wife, Rosemary, who Jeff knows, he knew her before I did, was at Galleria Italiano in 1996. So you well, might be responsible for the whole thing. <laughs> the rest is history. And That's it was awesome. really, that was literally our first date. Nice. So was there a point at which you, uh, you must have been working very hard, but was there a point at which you said, I've got a particular aptitude, talent, skill for cooking? I mean, you're working with some of the, you know, it had to be more than hard work. You got brought in by some of the best chefs around. You know, working with Barbara just exposed me to uh, a real passion. You know, there was two women in the basement making pasta by hand. This was all sort of new to me. You know, Newburyport was basically seafood platter. Everything was fried. And then realizing that I had I had something, Barbara was really good about pushing me 
started off pantry station and making desserts. Within six months, I was I was cooking on the line and just really was really into it. And then from there, I went to work with Todd English. Barbara had worked for Todd for for a few years. So, well, I love uh, hearing the word passion on our podcast. Add passion and stir because that's really what it's all about. And I feel like Jeff, in a way, you've kind of dealt with this issue because I know that you've often thought about the choice that people have to make between, um, you know, kind of making a living and, 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 uh, and creating wealth for themselves and their families, uh, but also doing what has a social impact and what they most want to do, what their real passion is. Uh, that was a choice you kind of made when you started Bridgespan. Tell us a little bit about your, your path. Yeah, no, I think it's, it, it doesn't have to be either or. And it's actually an interesting question about kind of how you find your passion and at the same time, kind of make the kind of difference in the world that you want to make. Um, so I started at Bain & Company, a consulting firm, way, way, way back um, after my undergraduate years, and then decided to get a PhD. And so went to graduate school and studied organizational behavior. And um, on that path, I kept kind of veering between business-oriented questions and social impact-oriented questions. So I actually kind of, I, interestingly, on the food front, um, I ended up writing a book on franchising, um, a very different part of the market. Re- restaurant food, franchising. Restaurant franchising. Okay. Yeah, right. Restaurant franchising studied Pizza Hut and, and uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken and all of these things, all these organizations, um, and was really intrigued by kind of how do you get entrepreneurs to, you know, have impact in the world in their businesses. And that then kind of morphed when I joined the faculty um, of a business school to the question of, well, how do you help social entrepreneurs, people that want to make a difference in the world in terms of social impact, spread their ideas? Because you had franchising in the for-profit sector just amazing that you, if you just think about it, you know, tens of thousands of McDonald's restaurants around the world kind of doing a similar thing, um, all in different contexts. Well, how do you do that kind of work? Um, in the in the uh, nonprofit sector, so my my own personal career kind of then went to saying rather than you know work on both of these just to devote myself solely to working on the nonprofit sector, which led to this the founding of Bridgespan. So I left um, the business school. Um, this was after my wife had had said multiple times like Why do they keep paying you? You're doing all this nonprofit work. Um, <laughs> don't you have to go to work? And I was and that was kind of one of the signals that it was time to to shift direction and actually focus exclusively on the social sector. And tell us what Bridgespan is for those who don't know. So Bridgespan is a nonprofit that works with philanthropists and nonprofits on their strategies for impact. And so we're exclusively focused on questions about breaking cycles of poverty and how kind of how organizations, how leaders can do that. At a, at a massive scale. And we do that. The work that we do focuses on consulting. So a lot of it is kind of conventional consulting work. We have a whole research and publishing um, group. And then we also have an executive education um, kind of division and group that focuses very much on helping leaders really take their own leadership development to another level, uh, level to increase impact. And all as a means to an end to address poverty. To address poverty, yes. Yeah. In so the United it, States and worldwide. In the United States and then now worldwide. We have we have an office in India um, and do are beginning to do work in Africa as well. Um, but we made a choice that, you know, big institutions, the higher ed institutions, big healthcare, all can get access to high quality resources. They have big donors, not all of them, but a lot of them. And organizations that are fighting poverty are, are often under- underinvested and underappreciated. And so we decided to build something that would bring that kind of quality help to organizations that otherwise wouldn't get it. 
Well, you know, I, I wonder in the nonprofit sector, one of the things I'm very familiar with is we have lots of young people that come to us and they're torn between, can I work at Share Our Strength? My parents say I should get, quote, a real job first, that I need to make some money, that I should go to an accounting firm or one of the banks or, or something like that. Now I think increasingly it is an option to really make a career there. But one of the things, Baz, that I've heard from so many chefs that we've talked to in the past is uh, some family pressures. If their family wasn't in the restaurant industry, their families would be saying, well, okay, you know, go do that, but then you're going to have to find a, a real job. Did you face any of that? Did your family support you? Did, did, were you able to convince them that this was actually you're going to turn into one of the most accomplished chefs in the, in the community and create a successful business out of this? Yeah, I mean, I've pretty much always been supported no matter which path I took. Did you have any, did you have doubts at any point of your own? Oh yeah. (laughs) It's not the most lucrative. It's, it's challenging. It's demanding. The hours are not great, but, uh, I've carved a good path for myself. I work for a great company. Um, I have weekends off. You work for Kempton, right? Yes. So So, so I work for Kempton hotels and restaurants. This is my ninth year. And Bombara, um, is it the is it the Marlowe Hotel? Hotel Marlowe in, Hotel in Marlo. East Cambridge. Okay. Yes. So I start. I got my start in San Francisco. Started uh, well with Kempton in 2010. And we were talking earlier. Kempton is a company that really likes to bring really great world class restaurants into their properties. Absolutely, it's always been uh, it's been chef driven. And uh, do they have a way of kind of creating um, community among the chefs? I think you'd mentioned that you've done some like a bonding ride, a bike ride. The camaraderie is fantastic. Yeah, with the, with the chef cycle, we actually we have a team. We have Kempton team. There's over 20 riders this year that are going to ride the sh- the 300 mile chef cycle ride. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, so it's been uh, and just you know once a year we have the chef chef GM conference. This year was in San Diego. It's a great way for us to really connect and uh, see each other that we don't you know see see very often. So, do you get asked to do a lot of things in the community? I always get the sense that chefs get asked. You know. Probably seven days a week. We do, and I've always been one to just say yes to everything, unless I really have something that is keeping me from doing it, then I'll be there. What are some of the causes that mean the most to you? Well, obviously, No Kid Hungry. Um, I support uh, 11 Spoonfuls. I've been working with Community Servings in Jamaica Plain, volunteering over there. So a lot around the hunger space. Absolutely. Jeff, in terms of uh, young people getting into the field of social impact, what are you saying? More of it, less of it, um, same challenges that have always existed or, or different? I think we're seeing more of it. I, I think back to when I was on the faculty at business school and when I was in graduate school. I mean, they, I think that mantra of like, go make money. And then after you've done that, contribute and serve has been very much turned on its head. People don't want to spend 20 years doing something that isn't their passion um, before kind of engaging in the community. So at, at Bridgespan, we have two to 3,000 applicants for about 10 spots each year. Um, so it just, the demand is huge. And I think, and it's not just Bridgespan. I mean, think about Teach for America. Think about just the number of city or just number of nonprofits that are extraordinary and attracting talent. And so I think it's a, it's, there's this signal that people want more engagement with the community, want to make a bigger difference earlier in their career and throughout. And I think more people are able to do it now. Um, it used to be there were just fewer opportunities where you could you know, blend the opportunity to contribute and learn and develop yourself in your you know, career. Um, and now there's more organizations that invest some in the young people concurrent with them being able to make a difference. So I'm going to ask you for an example of something that you've worked on 
that's had the kind of impact that you think would inspire a young person? If you were pitching a young person to join Bridgespan, one of the lucky 10 or 20 out of the several thousand that apply, uh, we were talking earlier before we turned on the switch here with our producer who was saying, tell us, you know, real stories of real people. Give us an example of something Bridgespan's done that you think has really changed lives. I know there's, it's probably hard to choose because I know Bridgespan well enough to know that there's a lot of such examples, but what's one that really inspires you and you think would inspire other young people? Well, I think one, one that jumps out is the Harlem Children's Zone, um, which we had the opportunity to work with starting about 18 years ago, which was a um, kind of a vision of a guy named Jeff Canada who saw the potential of ch- transforming the lives of young people by basically committing from the time they're born to when they actually get a job 20, 23 years later and kind of the cradle to career pathway and actually building that and committing. And because that's such an ambitious goal, he literally started with saying in this 21 square block area in Harlem, every kid that's born in that, we're going to commit to get to a kind of a, a great place um, where they're able to fulfill their potential. And so that kind of grounded just one astonishing leadership and vision, which is part of the great thing about Bridgespan. We get to work with these leaders that are just amazing in, in what they're trying to do. And you know, no, no belief that there's a simple silver bullet and just one little thing is going to fix it. I mean, staying with it you know, year after year after year. So we have a lot of organizations like that that range from big nonprofits that many people don't think about that way. But the YMCA would be another one where, you know, its reach, I mean, almost half the U.S. population lives within five miles of a YMCA. So it's just reach in the country is astonishing. And the programs it has for young people, for for disadvantaged populations and so forth is extraordinary. So there's a lot of things like that where you can enter a bridge span, you can enter those organizations, the Harlem Children's Zone, these things, and actually make a difference at a very at a very early stage. So go back to the Harlem Children's Zone for a moment and tell us what actually happened in those 20 blocks. You know, one of our mantras at Share Strength, we borrowed from the writer Jonathan Kozel, which is to pick battles that are big enough to matter, but small enough to win. So it sounds like Jeffrey Canada in the Harlem Children's Zone picked a battle that was, you know, big enough to matter, but small enough to win. You could actually reach every child but how did how did their lives change? Well, they, I mean, everything from prenatal care their, that their moms receive if they live in that area to what they have, they have programs ranging from the baby college, where it's literally after the babies are born, kind of uh, coaching and mentoring for parents. Um, he ended up building charter schools. So kind of uh, there's a whole pipeline of school experiences that are extraordinary. I was there this winter. Um, at a at a um, art fair and um, kind of extracurricular activity fair at the charter school that they have in Harlem. It was just extraordinary um, where kids that would otherwise not have been able to take advantage of this whole range of opportunities are completely um, kind of their trajectory is completely changed. And they have something like a 99% kind of entry rate into college. Um, and so it's just this kind of both commitment programmatically, but also just commitment relationally that, you know, you know, those, those kids, Kids by name in that neighborhood from the time they're born, you're working with them and engage with them and their families. Um, and it really is the, in some sense, the re- the constitution of community around these kids um, over a long period of time. Um, and they're just committed to seeing it through. And you can really see, as you're oh, describing, the before and after in terms of what it looked absolutely. like 
And it's been, so you, one, if you go to like this fair kind of in the, in the evening, which is extraordinary to talk to these young people, but it's also of course been scientifically studied with random assignment, all the fanciest methodologies to tell whether or not there's impact. They've done all of that where they're literally, it's, you know, if you were in the program, you get these kinds of outcomes. And if you didn't have the chance to um, participate in the program, you have a very different set of outcomes. And so, you know, it's inspiring to see that kind of um, impact. And then that leads to the scale question of like, well, if you can do it here, what is it going to take to get that to spread through the country? Okay. We're going to come back and talk about the elements of that kind of secret sauce. One of the things I want to ask you both, because you've been successful is success usually has a lot to do with creating kind of a certain culture where you work and bringing the best out of the people around you. Um, one thing I'm curious about, uh, Baz, since it's been a while since I've been to Bambara, is uh, what's the vibe that you create there? What's the experience that you're hoping your guest will have? You were kind enough today to bring little loaves of bread, I think Armenian bread, you said, for both uh, for both Jeff Braddock and myself. So I can tell you, you've got a sense of hospitality and giving about you since we can't eat the bread while we're talking. <laughs> Tell us what we would taste if we did and what, what you're hoping your guests take away. All right. So, uh, yeah, so I brought you uh, what's called chereg bread. How do you, uh, how do you spell that? C-H-O-E-R-E-G. Chereg. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's available at Eastern Limousine in Belmont and other Armenian bakeries. Uh, it's a typical um, bread or in Armenian culture where it's uh, similar to hala, but it's got uh, a high ratio of uh, – there's – butter and milk and so it's a dairy heavy bread and then it's got a really unique seasoning of a i sprinkle some za'atar spice on it which is like sesame seeds dried thyme and sumac and then inside is a in the dough is a called makhleb which is a ground cherry pit which gives it almost like an almond paste like flavor so it's very unique in that sense yeah so bambara you know coming into a restaurant that's uh you know and it's well when i started it was in its 13th year Trying to create an identity is not easy. I inherited all the the staff I inherited is pretty much all stayed. I've had very little turnover, uh, and something I pride myself on. I've always tried to just right away create that create a good culture of teamwork, respect, and transparency. And are are your Armenian roots on? It's I think you said on your dad's side before. Are those yep. a big part of your um, cooking, so, or was so, yeah. that, is the bread an exception? No, it, it, there's definitely. Uh, some Eastern Mediterranean influences in the food there. There's also French influence. There's some Japanese influence. So Jeff Braddock, uh, Chef Baz has told us about his secret sauce. I want to hear about yours in terms of how you actually scale uh, or how you help organizations scale and how much of uh, creating a culture is, is part of that. Yeah, I think it's a huge part of it. Um, I mean, I think both just at Bridgespan, I'm just struck by hearing um, Jeff Baz talk about his restaurant, because I feel like it's the same set of dimensions at Bridgespan that you're trying to create. Um, and, and many of it, I don't, you, you often don't think about the consulting part as kind of a, an act of hospitality. Um, that's kind of not the frame, although the deep engagement and the relationship you're trying to build with those that you're serving is such a key part of it. And so, so much of the, um, the scaling of things like Bridgespan and those that we serve, the organization we serve is about kind of how do you create that, that feeling that has people acting on their own in ways that are aligned and consistent with the vision you've collectively agreed makes a difference um, in the world. So the, the same core values of, 
you know, passion and respect and uh, a big one at Bridgespan is humility um, in terms of knowing what you know and then being very honest about what you don't know and being kind of open to that and constantly be learning from others and um, and uh, reaching out for help when you need it. And I think the same when you were working with organizations that are trying to scale. I mean, I think it's, that piece is a big part of it, the culture piece. There's also just quite simply the, you know, what's the what's the thing you're doing that's the nugget that actually is making the difference in whatever, whoever you're serving. If you're Jeff Canada and you've figured out a pretty complicated model of, or, you know, of how to serve kids in a community, how do you take that to another community? How do you take that to Lexington, Kentucky and say, hey, do what they're doing in Harlem? You know, so the, the act of figuring out what transports, what's similar, what's different, what do you have to customize um, is all important, often on the backbone of a, of a common culture. Um, that is the same in all these places, but how it's actually played out differs a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I that really resonates with me because it shares strength. I feel like what we've done over the last thirty years, it's it's almost our DNA is to be a scaling organization. Not not so much ourselves, but when we see a good idea, most of the things we're involved in were were they were not our idea. Okay, so school breakfast, for example, was not our idea, or moving breakfast from the cafeteria to the classroom, which more than doubles the participation, was not our idea. But when we saw it, we said, we have to make that happen everywhere. That was our idea, was to scale that. Or with our Taste of the Nation event originally, when we first did an event with chefs coming together to raise funds, uh, you know, the first year we did it, we did it in 25 cities. Most normal people, I think, would start by doing it in one place and say, let's see how it's going. And no, it's like, no, you know, we understood what those kernels were and we said, let's make it happen everywhere. Uh, but that but that may not be right for every organization, I'm assuming, right? Yeah, I don't think that, you know, there's, there's a, right now there's a big fad of scaling and going to scale. And, and it's also true that in communities, if you just, you think of your own community of like, kind of what are the, what are the pillars in your community that make it what it is? I mean, it's the youth sports league. It may be the, the um, religious communities that people are involved with. It may be the PTA. I mean, very local things where the issue of scale isn't so much the question. Or if I think of, of restaurants, I mean, obviously there's restaurant chains, but at any, in any given city, there's, you know, unique restaurants that are just deeply rooted in the community and are building community around those. They're the and, anchors and in many cases exactly. of the community. And so the, so I think we have to be careful about not saying, well, everybody's got to figure out how you go if you, if you got one good thing, see if you can make it 10. I don't think that's necessarily the imperative. Um, I think you can learn from them and so forth, but the notion that everything has to be replicated and so forth, I'm not sure is it needs to be the driving um, imperative. One of my favorite chefs in Boston for a long time was Gordon Hammersley, who was on this podcast. And one of the things I loved about Gordon is he had an only wanted to have one restaurant, which was Hammersley's Bistro. And when you went there at night, you knew that Gordon was going to be standing there cooking for you. And uh, if there were 50 Hammersleys, it probably wouldn't have it's been the same. the same. Yeah. I mean, it has other, there's other virtues of scale and so forth. But I do think there's an, sometimes an underappreciation of that unique, radically local experience that's deeply embedded in community and is what makes 
community. I mean, long ago when I was studying in re- fast food restaurants, I mean, it was interesting. There was a sociologist at Harvard named David Reisman, who was kind of just this grand master of sociology. And and there were all these books that came out about the, the evils of strip malls and fast food and so forth. And he he at the time was 80. He's, he's long since passed away. But he said, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember when there you couldn't count on what you'd get if you went into a restaurant. You, you, kind of, you entered a new town. And it was great when Howard Johnson's actually kind of got created. It was like a great relief that you knew what you were going to get when you went into this restaurant versus the local place. And so I think, you know, there's virtues to the certainty that you get with that. But also when you think of any given community, your neighborhood restaurant, I, it just part of the fabric of um, kind of the place you live and, and what it's about. Chef Baz, are you the, the, the guy in there cooking every night or is that uh, or uh, you have other responsibilities now? There's plenty of other responsibilities, but I, I'm still very hands-on, given the uh, the labor models these days. You know, that's uh, I'm definitely hands-on, doing a lot of the prep. I'm in the behind the scenes more so. Okay, but but we're, we're tasting your kitchen. food when we're Abs- there. Absolutely. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah, <laughs> Jeff. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about the nonprofit sector generally uh, is having worked in it for a long time. I feel like there are it's one of the sectors or industries that I feel there are more misconceptions about, uh, either about the way it is or the way it should be than almost any other. Has, is that a, has that been a factor for you? Have you seen that? Yeah. I mean, I, for sure it's, um, I mean, one is that, is that people sometimes will say, um, you know, nonprofits should be run more like a business there. They've got to be more efficient. And if you step back and think about it, I mean, there's no organizational form, I think, of sure our strength, where for as little resources as they have, they have as great an impact. Um, I mean, if you think of like the you know, activists right now fighting climate change, I mean, these are these tiny organizations against gigantic corporations spending billions of dollars on advertising. So if you just look at it in terms of like just the resource level and so forth, it's just, in fact, you're just in awe. I often say I'm just in awe of what's accomplished by the Jeff Canada's of the world of folks doing different things in the social sector. And so that's, so that's a big mis, uh, misconception. It's also the, the kind of the business metaphor and model. I mean, bridge span was predicated on the notion of bridging between sectors. That was one of the core ideas. And I think there's a tremendous amount to be learned across sectors. I mean, again, as I was saying, it was interesting, you know, the, the building a culture in a restaurant, building a culture in a nonprofit, building a culture in a big business, there's a lot that can be learned from each other across those. So I think there's a lot of cross-pollinization. And at the same time, nonprofits are very different entities. You know, people come to them for different reasons oftentimes. What motivates people to do what they're doing is different. You're, you, if you think about trying to have impact in the world, you're trying to figure out how do I give away what I'm doing to get the change in the world, not make money off it. And this is not a knock on making money. It's just, just the whole dynamics of social change are very different. And so I think that, you know, appreciating all of that um, is something that there's a much greater appreciation for now. Um, I mean, I think of people like Bill Gates and they've helped, you know, helped in this shift because when they moved over to their philanthropic work, invariably they say like, whoa, this is a lot more complicated, like changing American education. That is a complicated thing to do compared to building software. It's not to minimize software, but you know, it's, it's actually, you know, pretty complex stuff that often has taken decades to get to whatever the point it is now. And to think that you're going to change things quickly is usually unrealistic. 
Yeah, one of the things we were talking about just last night at a, at a small dinner was um, we were talking about the No Kid Hungry campaign. And, of course, everybody at the dinner is in favor of feeding a child who could be against that. Um, and I, I talked about the impact we've had doing that. But I shared that, you know, one of the other hard truths that we're facing is that one of the most important things we can do for a child is to help that child's parents or adult caregivers better take care of them and have a more stable situation. And people are like, yeah, that's really hard, right? I mean, I know we know how to feed kids, right? And we know how to make sure that kids get um, breakfast and lunch and, and after school snacks, but it gets much more complex when you think about hunger as a symptom of a deeper problem of poverty. And then how do you get to that? And then a lot of people's heads, I think, start to hurt really quickly about, okay, even people on the same side of the political aisle often disagree about what's the most effective way to do it. And our country has been at this for, you know, over 50 years now in terms of anti-poverty programs. And it's not that they don't work, but those that do work, we've had trouble getting them to scale because we haven't had the same kind of political will that we've had and that we can marshal and that, that I would say many of us know how to tap into about feeding a child. There's a lot of political will to do that. Right. Um, no, so I think it, that's it exactly very complex. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. And it is often leads people to just pause and say, I'll find something simple to do um, because that it's hard to roll up your sleeves and do that. It's also true on the hunger front. I and mean, I just have to say, I just am such an admirer of, of Share Our Strength and No Kid Hungry because you all picked an incredibly ambitious target. I mean, like on the one hand, we know how to feed kids. On the other hand, there's there are still a lot of kids that aren't getting food. So the the kind of closing that gap, which has been the mission of No Kid Hungry and the and the the movement you've made on that, I mean, also is inspiring other people with other kinds of problems to feel like you actually can move the needle on some of these issues. Well, Chef Baz is about to do something very hard. I want to come back to the Chef Cycle conversation. So you've talked about being involved with our No Kid Hungry campaign, with Love and Spoonfuls, with other organizations. And there are, are lots of ways to to help that have to do with what you do naturally. You cook or you're able to donate money. Uh, but you're about to, uh, in six weeks, five weeks now, I guess, launch a, onto a 300-mile in three-day bike ride. Uh, who talked you into it? How did you decide to do it? How are you training for it? Uh, my buddy Mike Ryan is the director of bars for Kempton. He lives in Chicago. He rides when it's negative 10 on a fixed gear. So On a fixed gear, meaning one yeah, gear, a one-year yes, bike? Yeah, so he's uh, he basically just sent me a message and said, Baz, you're doing it this year. I said, okay. You know, he's asked me the last couple of years and I was uh, hesitant. And uh, I looked at it like, okay, this was January. That gives me roughly 16 weeks to train. Basically, I've just been training really hard, raising money and just having a good time with it. You know, my, my wife's been a huge inspiration and very supportive, you know, and these long rides take some time. So that's the one of the challenges for this ride is the training is not something you can do in an hour or two. You've got to go out and ride for three or four hours because the ride itself is 100 miles a day is going to take at least six hours for most of us. And uh, uh, and so your friend who um, runs bars at Kempton, uh, is, he's ridden Chef Cycle before. You know, when you, when you ride this ride, the, the, the miles are not so much the challenge as the elevation because uh, we have about 5,500 feet of climbing each day. And, and some of them have degrees of... Uh, you know, the the degree is like 8, 10, the grade, I guess, 8, 10, 12 degrees. And so you're riding and you keep 
getting to the easier and easier gear. And I keep looking back at my gear to see if I've got one left. <laughs> and then, you know, and everybody's doing the same Running thing. Running out. And you get on this hill and you th- and then you hear this click and it's like, okay, I don't have an easier gear to go to. How am I going to get to the top of this thing? And then you see this guy pass you who's on one gear, right? A fixed gear bike. It's almost like superhuman. It's, I don't know how he does it. It's, it's incredible. Uh, but we'll have this year about 280 chefs and restaurateurs, uh, mostly chefs who are riding. And as you'll see, Baz, um, there's always one chef who brings his or her kitchen crew and they build a pop-up kitchen in the parking lot of where we finish at the hotel where we finish. And then having ridden a hundred miles, he or she then cooks for another 280 chefs and pretty high protein, uh, meal, but also very high standard cooking for that many. Jeff, I wanted to also make sure we touch on a couple other um, things that are going on in the field that I know that you're involved in. And I'm thinking, for example, of impact investing, which is a term that's also become very popular in the nonprofit sector. Um, say a little bit about what that means and what's important about it as people start to think about how to deepen their commitment to philanthropy. Yeah, I think the, at the heart of impact investing is just can you can you do for profit investing um, and have social impact? And, it, and does I'm, this relate to double bottom line? Exactly. Also, so, yeah, okay, so that so. you get there's a financial return and an impact return on kind of what it is that you're doing. And this it's it's in some sense it's been named. It's people have invested in their communities in various ways, and and so there's been examples you know forever of economic activity leading to social impact. I mean, if you look at just the, um, uh, the the billion people that have moved out of poverty in the last decade and a half around the world, that's largely one, economic, one, billion. one billion. Like when you think of China and India, just that's stronger economies, jobs, lifting people out of poverty. So this relationship between economic activity um, investing in social impact, I think, is kind of stands to reason that that you can you can think about those two in the same frame. They don't have to be necessarily a trade off, and you can think about different on a continuum of you know making less money but making having greater social impact um, and and not kind of maximizing the profit from any given deal that you're doing. So there's a lot of people experimenting now with different ways to bring private investment capital to bear on different kinds of problems. And I think one of the big questions, and we're spending a lot of time at Bridgespan on, is like, well, how do you make sure on the impact side that impact's really happening? Um, I was going to ask you about that, that it's not just a rationalization. Exactly. I mean, it's a lot, oftentimes, I don't know if it's a rationalization, but oftentimes it's after the fact, you kind of look back and go like, oh, look at, you know, we we built this company and it created some jobs and and that was it. But the question of, of kind of are you doing something that otherwise wouldn't have happened in the world in terms of impact? I think requires a, a more of a discipline and we're seeing more of that. Um, the more funds that are focusing on that and more investors that are saying, okay, if, if you're serious about impact, I'm willing to actually take lower returns. Um, if, if along with those returns, I could actually get impact. So I think it's a big thing. I think the jury is out on what kind of where it will settle over the course of time, kind of the relationship between the impact piece of the equation and the financial um, part of the equation. I think it's a, a really important trend. And when you mentioned that uh, more than a billion people have been lifted out of poverty, citing China and India, uh, are, are you, do you subscribe to the school of thought that I associate with Bill Gates or the writer Steven Pinker, or Hans Rosling, another writer, that things are actually a lot better than we think they are and that they've been getting better directionally? Um, or 
or not? I mean, I, I go back yes and forth. No. I, I was going to say, I, I think I'm one. on the back and forth one too. It's at this big macro global level. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time in India and there's just no question that in the last 20 years, just the, the, the country has been lifted up by virtue of business activity and economic activity in a way that, that has lifted just hundreds of millions of people out of abject poverty. I mean, you can't look at that and not go like, that's a good thing. That is better than the alternative. So for sure, that's the case. And at the same time, you know, it's also true that things like climate change um, are worse and are riskier and are, you know, kind of create an existential threat. Um, to us all. And it's not yet clear we have the wherewithal and the political will and the energy to confront it in the way we need. And even amid the, the prosperity, you have just a lot of people talking about the wealth inequality that exists um, also. So, you know, it's, it is which a is, mixed which story. Is, and which the is, inequality is getting worse, it's getting right? Worse. The divide's exactly. larger. So it's Although getting, in relative terms, even the people at the low end of that are probably a, a better than they, were than they were 100 years right. ago. And so it's a complicated, I mean, I, yeah. I think, you know, the debate, there's a lot of people debating kind of whether um, Pinker is wrong or whether Gates is wrong. And I, I, you know, they're not right or wrong. I mean, it's a, it's a more nuanced story. There's a lot of stuff going up. And at the same time, there's some stuff going down that you need to focus on. Yeah. Tell us what's next for, for both of you. Uh, any plans to do anything different at Bambara? Anything, um, uh, any other restaurants in your future? How do you and Kimpton think about your career long term? I've been fortunate to be able to open, help open other restaurants while being at Bombar or previously when I was in San Francisco. I opened up the first uh, European property in Amsterdam. Uh, Palm Springs, Portland, Portland, Oregon. So a lot of cool travel. And that's, and, a, I'm assuming that's an art in and of itself to into getting yeah, a, a new great. place. You know, open. they call it task force. So I'll go and I'll support the, the chef on property and sort of get them to the finish line and, and you're, what are, and so what are you doing? You're giving them tips on just like how to make this. Oh, well, just helping them go. with, helping them with all the admin work and helping them get their team together and just, just really just support them. And, you know, we do a, it's a rigorous 15 day training with the whole team that's on bro on property and uh, just, just work our way up. So when we, you know, when it's time to open the doors, we're like a pretty well oiled machine. So, so it's been a good experience. So is there one of those around the corner for you? Hopefully. I mean, there's a, uh, we're opening uh, in Mexico city. There's a few other, few other good ones on, on the docket. So, and Jeff at Bridgespan, you're always writing, you're always traveling. You've got an office in India now. What's, uh, what do you think about in terms of the next iteration of your work? I think one of the things we're most focused on right now is how do you unlock more philanthropy to the many, many good ideas now that are proven ideas about what changes the world and get more money to them um, with this great accumulation and increase in wealth. Um, the question is, how do you how do you inspire, motivate and and channel that to just the amazing social entrepreneurs around the world, organizations like No Kid Hungry, that with more resources can actually move the needle on some of the most important problems. So we're really we're very, very focused on that, which is both on the philanthropy side, but also on the on the nonprofit side or the social um, entrepreneur side about getting them ready and prepared to absorb greater amounts of capital. 
Okay, well, we can extend this podcast if you can give us the answer. We won't tell anybody else, but tell, just tell those of us at the No Kid Hungry campaign, how do we unlock that philanthropy? It is, it, it's, it is a giant mystery. I mean, when I, when I say a mystery, I mean, a lot. there's a lot more money flowing than there was, um, but it remains it remains a challenge to figure out. We've done a lot of work. Um, one of my colleagues, William Foster, who I think was on one of your podcasts on yeah. on big bets and kind of the, the argument that we had at Bridgespan was if we could tee up these what we called shovel ready big bets that just all you had to do is put money in and then you could deal with hunger. You could deal with different problems that the money would flow like a river. And, and the reality is it's not quite flowing like a river. It's flowing more than it was. Um, but it's still, you know, I, I think the question of some of it is the misconceptions and preconceptions about nonprofits like, oh, well, they use the money wisely. Um, but the money's there. I mean, when I think about big higher ed, the, the elite higher ed institutions, I mean, here in Boston, Harvard had, a, I think it was like a, a, seven mil, a $7 billion capital campaign and raised something like nine. So you're left kind of scratching your head. And Harvard's great. It has a giant impact on the world. And when I think of like its research and everything and its students. So this isn't a knock at, in any way at higher ed. But it's just like, wow, the money must be out there. If you if you were aiming for seven and you ended up with nine, there's money there. Yeah. And yet it's there's organizations. And again, I'll, I'll just since we're with you with No Kid Hungry, like that with more money could do more. Or Jeff Canada with more money could do another hundred blocks with YMCA could fight childhood diabetes. I mean, you just kind of go down the list and say money is actually something that would lead to, to more impact in the world. Yeah. Well, you know, my bias on this uh, in terms of unlocking uh, philanthropy, and and it's interesting because it brings this conversation full circle. I have no idea how to scale what I'm about to describe. But what, what I have found is, and I, and I and by the way, I think that the big bet work that Bridgespan and William Foster and you have done is, has, has been brilliant. But what I have found is that there's an emotional component to unlocking it, that no business plan, no PowerPoint, no email or report or anything else uh, can unlock. And so we're always looking for ways to have people have some version of the same emotional experience that we had when we first decided that we were going to start this work. So we took a group to the border uh, a couple of weeks ago from Boston, actually. It was about 20 philanthropists from Boston, uh, including a couple of folks from Bain. And we visited with some of the families uh, who had been uh, involved in family separation and unaccompanied minors, sat in immigration court. And there was no hard ask, but to a person, everybody who came on that trip uh, donated significantly because they were just so moved. And again, how do you scale that, right? How many, how many, if I, if I did it every week of the year, I, it would still be a fraction of the number of people that could be involved, but it was so powerful that I find, I feel like we have to find a way to create those opportunities for people. Yeah. I think, you know, that Brian Stevenson of the equal justice initiative talks a lot about proximity. And I do think being proximate to the problem, being proximate to the people um, that you're quote unquote helping, but you really don't know, don't see, don't understand is a giant piece of the puzzle. So I do think it, it is, a, there is a scaling challenge with it, but it may be the only way to do it. I, I look at, you know, David Brooks just wrote a column in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago on the weavers in communities. I mean, kind of when you look at like what makes a community vibrant, healthy, a place you want to be, it's pretty kind of day-to-day interactions of people um, that make that difference and kind of how do you catalyze that and support that and kind of fan the embers into making communities strong, I think is is kind of one of the big social change questions we have right now. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. Um, okay, last question. We always save the hardest for last. Um, Chef Baz, if you had to pick a 
restaurant other than your own that you think people should know about because it's kind of a, I don't know, hidden gem in the community, uh, maybe gets overlooked or your favorite go-to place when you're not working? Uh, where would you, where would you send our listeners? Uh, it's probably tougher for you than for Jeff. It's tough because I have a bunch of buddies in the industry. I I really do love Sarma. Uh, it's not a Sarma. And where's that? Sarma is in Somerville. Uh, Cassie Puma is the, the chef and, uh, flavor profiles are right at my alley. It's just a really great restaurant. Um, and I think it's, I know it's what a you... sister restaurant of, uh, Oliana. Oh, so okay. Anna Got it. And I think I, w- I know what you mean by flavor profile, but since you're a chef and I'm not, <laughs> uh, describe what flavor just profile like, means. Uh, basically it's Eastern Mediterranean, it's Turkish, it's Armenian, it's Georgian. It's, it's all those really, uh, a lot of spices and a lot of use of acids and like, you know, uh, just highly seasoned. And Jeff, now we could hire you to consult on picking the best restaurant in Boston, but you you probably have a favorite and you can just tell us. Yeah, I will, since I'm not going to offend kind of anybody, I, I live in Wellesley and actually the two go-to restaurants that we always go to are, one is Juniper. I think it's, I think the chef is Dave Becker. Dave Becker and I cooked together in the early 90s. Oh, really? Where we're, were you? We're both from, or from the New, he's from New Report. I'm oh, from really? New Report, but yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, so, and he also, he makes his own pottery plates and uh, he's supplied some of the stuff for Bombara. So he's a, uh, he's a very talented individual. Yeah. It's a great, he makes his own pottery plates. Wow. And where were you guys cooking together in Newburyport? Yeah. A place called Scandia. Uh, It's long gone now, but uh, yeah, a long time ago. Fun. Well, the restaurant industry is incredibly interconnected, right? Absolutely. That's that's been key about, you know, don't burn your bridges and just make connections along the way. And it, it takes you, you know, takes you pretty far. Um, well, thank you both for being with us. Um, Chef David Baz, I'm just going to call you Baz. One thing that's important is for people to know that there is a fundraising page to support your ride. You can follow my Instagram, B-A-Z-A-R-7-4. And then, you know, in my bio, you can click the link there and that takes you right to the donation page. Okay. And that's been, uh, it's been quite successful for me. So, um, uh. I'm really, really excited to to raise more money for this great cup. Well, thank you for doing it. We're expecting to raise over $2 million, which means the average rider is going to raise somewhere between $5,000 and $10,000. And you may already be there, but folks should keep donating. And Jeff Braddock at BridgeSpan. So BridgeSpan.org is the best place to get more information about the many, many things you're doing? Yes. Yeah, I don't, I'm not doing a ride. I don't have a donation page, but I'm an avid <laughs> donor to Billy's page for the last several years on this oh, ride. Okay, so, so Baz, like, Baz so, and I are competing. Exactly, for your, but now Baz, I'm going gonna, gonna to do both. I'm going to do both, but okay. um, I highly it, recommend it. Well, you know, it actually kind of keeps you going. I've had days where I didn't want to go out and train. It, you know, it just felt like a crummy day. And then so I, I'd get a ping on my email that somebody just donated $1,000. And I was like, I got to get out there. <laughs> right. I got to do it. Well, thanks you both for being with us. Uh, thanks everybody for listening. I'm Billy sure this is at passion and stir you can go to our website at adpassionandstir.com and you could find previous episodes you can rate us and rank us and subscribe and let your friends know about this podcast thanks so much for listening i'm billy shore ad passion and stir is distributed by district productive our executive producer is peter ogburn ad passion and stir is the creation of billy shore debbie shore and paul woody woodhall 